Well, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Samuel. Well, we will be in chapter 12. I know your bulletin says chapter 1. We are not going back. And that page number is going to be 309. I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 to 15, and which is typically the case for me in a lot of my sermon prep. Trying to do too much in one sermon usually gets me in trouble, but we are going to try to look at different parts of Psalm 51 that we have read already because um, this, this is David's response uh, from his sin that we have seen last week in chapter 11 as we looked at the sin of uh, taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah and everything else. And now as we go into chapter 12, we see his confession um, that we'll be taking both of those together. But this whole, this whole count is to be read as one account too. We're breaking it into two parts, but just for, um, for our, our reading purposes. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb who he had bought. And he bought... Or, sorry, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it, in, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed 
You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. We pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would graciously, by your spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you take our hearts, would you soften them in the good soil, such as a seed that goes into good soil would produce a fruit that we too would produce a fruit and leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll start with a question this morning. What are, are, you, are you comfortable with grace? Are you comfortable with grace? And um, as we think about that, I'll just define grace as getting something you don't deserve. Um, if you've been around the church much, hopefully you've heard the word grace a lot. We've obviously been using it in our series as we talk about living out of God's grace for his glory, which is something certainly uh, we are seeing in this text this morning for sure. But are you comfortable with it? Because if there was ever a moment that we were truly going to need to see David, and of course ourselves, but see David live out of God's grace for his glory, it's, it's here. It's at this point in his life, uh, in this story, in this account, as we have seen his sin, uh, seen the destruction, the, the fruition of his sin, and now we see how God is going to handle David. Well, last week we asked the question, what's really inside of you? How should it be dealt with? And we said that we can't begin to deal with what's inside of us until we know, right, what, what's there. And the answer to that question is, at the very least, right, what's inside here are the seeds of the most despicable deeds imaginable. And as we look at David, we recognize that we are no better, that, that we're capable of the things that David is capable of, even if our sin hasn't reached that maturity level. So what do we do about this? And the short answer that we'll look at this morning is we repent. We repent. We confess and we repent. We seek the Lord's forgiveness and we repent. And repentance then, by virtue of what we're seeing in this text, is a grace of God unto itself. If we're not comfortable with grace, then we're not comfortable with repentance. That's what I want us to see this morning. And the reason this is true is because we don't repent, we don't change apart from God. So repentance, uh, as J.I. Packer would say, is the fruit of faith, which is in itself a fruit of regeneration, which is a, a fruit of a, of a work of the Spirit in our lives. Repentance, then, isn't me, it isn't you, doing something separate from God, which I think can often be how we think about the idea of repentance. I have gone and done something wrong, I've sinned, and I need to get right with God. But the way the Bible talks about this is that, no, 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 those two things go together. God is actually the one that leads you to repentance, it is his spirit working in you. It is a grace to you that this would even happen in the first place. It is all an act of God's grace to us. There is no greater kindness of the Lord than to do this in your life. 
And the same is true for David. There's, as much as we can think about the consequences of his sin, which we'll look at more next week, as much as we can think about even in our own lives, what would happen if this thing came to life, there is no greater kindness, there is nothing better for us than for God in his grace to lead us into repentance, which means he pursues us in our sin, he's willing to show us our sin that we may confess it and repent of it, but not just that, that we may be and be led unto a new, new life. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this quote by Eugene Peterson this week. The moment we recognize our common sin bond with David, and that was the point of last week, we're ready for the real surprise, the gospel story that develops out of the sin story. And that's what I want us to see this morning. The gospel story that flows out of or develops out of the sin story. We'll see that in three ways. We'll see how grace pursues us in our sin. We'll see how grace shows us our sin. And we'll see how grace leads us to new life as we look at this account with David. So let's take that first one, how grace pursues us in our sin. In other words, it doesn't condemn us. Chapter 12 begins with the Lord sent Nathan to David. Before we go any further here, let's sit in this statement because this is God's grace to David. Nothing happens for David in the rest of this account with regard to confession and repentance, uh, whatever we want to call being a good Christian even, unless God does this. Unless God sins or pursues David uh, and it's not after he has confessed but it's while he still remains in his sin. Do not miss that. David deserves punishment in the form of death itself. But that's not what the God of the Bible does, right? He actually pursues David. And he does so in his own sin. So what does Nathan do when he gets to David, right? Does he bring the fire and brimstone that we might expect? And he doesn't. He doesn't actually. Nathan comes to David and he tells him the story, and this too is a kindness of God, that he would be gentle in this way, giving him an opportunity to see himself in the story, which he doesn't. <laughs> but this is what he does. So let's unpack that story for a second. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man uh, had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. The poor man loved this little ewe lamb and took care of it. And the text says, this is a brilliant, brilliantly written story, by the way, said it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So you start to see right, how the story itself is to be reflective of, 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 of the David and Bathsheba and Uriah's story. So now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, all right? Okay. So what did, this, what, did he, what did he do? The text says he took, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, this is normal in the sense that a guest or traveler would come to you, right? It would be normal to prepare a meal for that person, but obviously what gets our attention as we look at this story is that the rich man who had everything, what, decided to take what he could easily have spared on his own. 
took all that the poor man had. And it's here that David erupts in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled, the text says, against the man. And he said this to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Again, it would be normal for Nathan or others to report situations like this to the king, to David. He hears this story from Nathan and has no idea that he is the rich man in the story. For a moment, we can shake our heads and say, you know, how does David not know this? What a hypocrite, right? Being so quick to judge in this situation, yet somehow right, what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, that's okay. I mean, that's where he is, bringing judgment upon this other person. But this is where uh, we need to stop for a second and recognize that this is exactly what sin does in all of our lives. It blinds us. It blinds us to our own actions. It blinds us to our own behaviors. And because it blinds us, what we need something outside of ourselves to show us and to convict us of that sin. So that confession and repentance might take place. In the case of David, God sent Nathan to take the blinders off, as it were, so that David might begin to see his sin. Nathan is God's grace to David. That is what we mean when we say that grace pursues us in our sin. This is why repentance is always a grace unto us, that the worst thing that God could do is just to leave David alone. Let sin do what sin does, leave him blind, right, and rotting from the inside. By contrast, then, the most loving thing that God could do is not leave David alone, no matter how difficult it might be to have his sin exposed to him and to others, but the most loving and therefore gracious thing that God could do is pursue him in his sin and open his eyes to the ways that he has wronged him and wronged others. And the same is true for us this morning. This is why repentance is a, is a grace to us. Dale Ralph Davis says this regarding the opening words. They show us that grace pursues and exposes the sinner in his sin. They teach us that Yahweh will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in sin, but will ruthlessly expose his sin lest he settle down in it. Why do I labor here just to, to make the point about how grace pursues us in our sin? And perhaps I'm, I might be missing or making too many assumptions this morning, but if you've grown up, for example, in a, in a church community, or not even a church community, but just any legalistic community, or even a moralistic one, if good behavior was what was rewarded in your living situation. If the idea of faking it until you make it was and is one of the unspoken rules of spirituality in your life, meaning you can't let anyone know what's going on, you've got to put on the good front and move forward, then my guess is that repentance, rather than being a grace to you, is probably a sign of failure.
Repentance then is probably thought of as weakness and not growth. Repentance is a reminder that you are not good enough. Instead of it being a reminder that what? God is with you. That he is not willing to let you what? Settle down in your sin. And that in his love, he pursues you in the midst of your sin story so that you might begin to know the gospel story that flows out of it. This is what's true for David, and it's what's true for us this morning. God doesn't abandon us in our sin. He pursues us in the midst of it. And before we move forward, right, before we have any other conversation about repentance, again, this may, I mean, might be making too many assumptions for you this morning, but do you see it as a grace to you that God would actually reveal your sin to you. That it, it doesn't come to us in condemnation, it comes to us in love. And maybe a better way to ask that is like, what, what, is it, what does it look like for you when somebody closer to you, a family member, a spouse, comes to you and, and, and tries in, a, in the best way that they can to talk to you about something they see in your life? How do you respond to that? Do you get defensive? Or do you think about the fact that maybe, maybe this is God's grace to me as he pursues me through this person in my life to show me something about me that for all practical purposes could be killing you inside. And so wherever you are with that, right, we're all in different places as we allow people to come and confront us, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives with things. Wherever we are with that, we have to begin with understanding that repentance is a grace to us. It is not punishment to you. It is not a sign that God has left you. It is not a sign of failure to you. It is a sign of growth. It is a sign that God is with you. Because if he wasn't, you wouldn't be seeing the very thing that you are being confronted with. And that is the case with David. The difference, between, like, the difference between David and Saul at this point, David's sins are way more than Saul's, by the way. We, we tried to cram this into this sermon, just didn't work. David's done way worse things externally. But God's love hasn't left David in the sense that this is part of what that means. I will come to you and show you because I love you. That's what he does for him. And this is what he does for us. And if we, if, we, if we don't take anything else away from this sermon, when we think about repentance in our life and what it looks like and, 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 and its purposes, that we never disconnect it from God's love and grace and kindness to us. This is the first thing. God pursues us in our sin. Doesn't wait for us to get better. Doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. Because we can't. It's only by him coming to us and revealing this to us that we can begin to change. And this gets to the next point, how grace shows us our sin. And really the sin underneath the sin. Part of being in any relationship with someone is being honest with them about the ways that they have 
hurt you and vice versa. And this is going to mirror our relationship with, of course, each other, but with God himself. Cheap repentance, though, is just saying I'm sorry in any relationship. Now, for sure, at any given time, that might be all that, 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 that we can do. But true confession that leads to repentance knows and acknowledges that the sin actually, knows what the sin actually is and why it was wrong. So when our children, for example, come to us and they say, I'm sorry, as the softy in the family, I'm, I'm quick to hug and say, it's okay, you're forgiven without them even talking. But Ada, not so fast. And I'm, I'm thankful for this, Right? She has loved our children better than I have during, uh, do, do, by doing this. So when our kids come to us and they say, I'm sorry, after she pushes me out of the way to stop giving them a hug and all that stuff, she says, for what? And I've, of course, adopted this as well. Not that her or our forgiveness will be withheld otherwise, right? But it's important that our children know what they actually did wrong and why it matters. And the same gets worked out in my relationship with Ada, right? I can say I'm sorry, but man, when she says for what, ugh, I don't really want to talk about that. You know what I'm sorry for, right? But, right, is that, does that really show that I care? I'm not even willing to name exactly what it is. See, part of repentance is being shown exactly what our sin is, who it hurt, why it matters, so that both parties might be in relationship together. Saying I'm sorry doesn't really mean anything if it's not attached to the actual offense, which means you care enough about the other person to know what that is. So one of the things this does is it acknowledges that there's actually a sin underneath the sin. And for genuine confession and repentance to move in that direction, God has to show us this. And this is exactly what Nathan does for David. If we look at verses 7 to 12, thus says the Lord, this is after Nathan has said, you are that man, you're the man. Right, which is really the turning point in chapters 11 and 12. It's the fulcrum that everything turns on here. Nathan says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Verse 9, Why? Have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in this sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. All right, so first God... You see, it's reminding David that everything that he has, right, everything that he's been given, right, is God's grace to him, um, namely David's power and authority. Right? It is David who has misused this in so many different ways here. But God's point is like, I'm the one who has installed you. I'm the one who's anointed you. I, you see this, I'm the one who's delivered you. I'm the one who's given you the things that you have. 
What more could you want? What could David need that God hasn't provided? All of this is gift to David, which is to say that it is all grace. And this is where true conviction comes from, right? It, it comes from and it leads to confession by, by seeing that we in our sin act against grace itself, which is to say we have acted against the one who what loves us the most. But second, God doesn't just show David his sin to get there, right? What, 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 you know, what he did to Bathsheba or Uriah. He shows him the sin underneath the sin, which leads to that conviction. And what exactly is that for David? We'll look back there in verse 9 and 10. It says it twice. It's despising the word of the Lord. It's recognizing that first and foremost, you looked at God's word uh, to you uh, to not murder, to not commit adultery in this case, and you completely disregarded it. This is why it would actually be wrong for David to only say that he's sorry for taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah, which in our minds might be enough. But this is why it would be wrong for him to just say that, which means that as we begin to understand our sin, one of the things we learn is that sin is always first and foremost personal to God himself. It's always personal to God himself. And why? Well, first, Bathsheba and Uriah, what? They're image bearers, right? Let's not overlook the obvious. They carried the image of God, not the image of David. How dare he destroy one and show disregard for the other? But second, God loves and cares for Uriah and Bathsheba more than, more than anybody could. More than a parent, more than a spouse, right? It's that personal. Therefore, in seeing the sin beneath the sin, David sees his sin as a direct attack on the God of grace who has given him all things, and this is what leads to genuine repentance for David. And so David will actually write about this many months later as he writes Psalm 51. This is his reflection upon this. And we've read this before. We read it this morning. Verse 4, he says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. All right, when we read that, we think, well, you and you only have I sinned? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Right. All of those involved who suffered or died in the wake of David's uh, selfishness, didn't you sin against them too? And of course, the answer is yes, but what is he saying, right? David is saying here, and it, all sin has a more personal component to it towards God himself because it is an attack on his own creation, his own character, his law, everything. And so the sin of, of, of taking Bathsheba, the sin of taking and killing Uriah, those need to be forgiven. He needs to seek their forgiveness, but the greater offense, the sin underneath the sin, is how it despises the word of the Lord, as the text says. It's how it is a personal affront to God himself. And until David sees that, until he sees how his sin personally attacks the very God who gives him life, who has given him everything, it will just be cheap repentance. And he'll never break over it. And the same is true for us this morning. What ultimately breaks our hearts over our sin by the Holy Spirit's guidance as if we're Christians, is seeing 
how it's an attack against our first love, Jesus himself. And so as we think about repentance in our lives, as we think about how we have hurt other people, those are real offenses and need to be worked out. But the starting place has to go one step deeper, right? I didn't just, you know, hurt my wife when I said this to her. I, I hurt my Savior because that, that sin is personal to him because of the way he thinks about her. So do we take the time to investigate that, that it's just not over when I have said I'm sorry for what I've done? That where our repentance leads us is to recognize the sin underneath the sin and how this has affected our Savior first. That it's personal to him, and only when we get to that point, when we see that, will will change really happen? Will, Will our hearts change? This is why repentance is never just behavior change. Repentance in Scripture was always heart change. Listen to what David says, going back to Psalm 51 again in verse 16. If you... He says, if, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What, David, what is David saying? He is saying that repentance is heart change. It's not behavior. And certainly with heart change follows behavior. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But nothing happens in the way that God designs it to happen until our hearts are broken over the things that we have done, and and our hearts will not break until we see its personal offense towards God. And it doesn't mean that we don't hurt over the people that we hurt. There's There's a natural pattern here that the Bible is guiding us in, directing us in, so that we may be led to genuine confession and repentance. There's a part of this that seems impersonal, right? The offense here is to Bathsheba, the offense is to Uriah which makes it all the more for us to sort of step back and recognize why would David say, against you only have I sinned, Lord. And perhaps for some of us, that, that, that's as far as we go with this point, right? This is where we need to do business with, with understanding, do we really see our sin as, as affecting and hurting and, and, and personally attacking our Savior? And do we care about that? As much as we will care about our reputation with other people, as much as we care about those that we love that we hurt, there's a metaphor there. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, it is an illustration for the way that we are to think about God. And the more that we begin to see how our sin, right, the offense that it takes towards God, the more that we begin to see where we need to change, how we need to change. This is what breaks our heart over these things. But this doesn't happen without, apart from the grace of God, apart from him showing you these things, apart from him showing David, hey, this is where you think that you did wrong, maybe what you did wrong, but here's really the offense. And this is God's grace to David and it's God's grace to us, all right? Let's move, move on from that point as we look at how sin, how, how grace shows us our sin, really the sin underneath our sin, Let's get to what this leads to, which is new life, which is really the point of repentance in the first place. So this is the last point. Grace leads us to new life. David sees his sin and the sin underneath the sin here. 
And, and in verse 13, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I love what Dale Ralph Davis, Davis says again about this. He says, to be the man after God's own heart is not to be sinlessly perfect, but to be, among other things, utterly submissive to the accusing word of God. There's a sermon here in and of itself, and I'm, and I'm sure we'll come back to this throughout this series. Um, but as we, we've looked at David's life, what, it, what does it mean to be a man for God's own heart? Let me just highlight this. He listens, he listens, and he submits himself to the accusing word of God. And if you're looking for what it looks like to be a man or a woman for God's own heart, that's it. I will submit to the word of the Lord. And this is what David does in his confession here. We will take up David's suffering next week as a consequence of his sin. But this is the utter scandal of, great, of the grace of God. Here, David is guilty of heinous sins. To say his sin has been put away, as Nathan went on to say, is to say that he will not receive its just penalty. If you look back there, the Lord has, as soon as, as Nathan, or David has confessed, Nathan says, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Again, this doesn't mean that David won't suffer consequences. Uh, David will. Again, we'll look at this next week. But it means that God will not, what, hold David's sin against him. As quick as David's confession comes, just as quick as Nathan's declaration that the Lord has put away his sin, has forgiven him. Do you have a problem with that? And this is why I asked at the beginning, are you comfortable with grace? Because if you have a problem with it, I'm not sure that any of us have a, a moral leg to stand on here. Because what this means is that none of us get what we deserve. David's not getting what he deserves. We're not getting what we deserve. This is the point of grace. But why does God do this? And there's a lot of answers for this, but is it because God is good? Yeah, he's good. But it's also because God desires something more than just forgiveness in our lives, right? That is, that at the heart of genuine repentance, God is in the business of creating something new in us. That you are a new creation by the Spirit's work which leads to new life. And this is the purpose of a broken spirit in the first place of all repentance, that we would change, that we would be led to new life. Going back to David's Psalm 51 here, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, he says, and renew a right spirit within me. This word here for create uh, is bara in, in, in the Hebrew. And it's the same word that we are reading when we open the first chapter of Genesis 1. Which reads what? In the beginning, God created. What the God of the Bible does in Genesis 1, as only the true God can, what he creates ex nihilo, which is to create out of nothing. And that's what God does, right? Out of nothing, he speaks and he creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And here, David is appealing to God to do the same thing. Not with the external creation, but internally, spiritually, with his heart. In other words, David is asking God to create something new that's not currently there. Derek Kidner writes and says it this way. He says, with the word create, he, David, asks for nothing less than a miracle. He desires what only God can provide. 
And so first, what, what David is not asking God to do here, he's not saying, God, take what's there and just make it a little better. Right? And this appeals to last week, right? What, what is there? <laughs> David's not asking God to take what's there and make it, make it a little better. He's not saying, I admit I've made some mistakes. Can you just help me along, you know, help me a little more? Um, this won't happen again, I promise. That's not what he's saying. David isn't even asking for a second chance here. He's not saying, okay, I blew it, but I promise that I can do better. Rather, what David is saying is the only chance that I have is if you, God, do a work in my life like the one you did before creation. That you make something new here. The only chance I have is if you create something new that isn't in me right now by your spirit. I need new desires. I need new motives. I need to think differently about you. I don't just need a second chance. I need a new heart. And this is what God does, friends. This is the purpose of repentance. It's not just to get back on God's good side, right? You already are on good side. This is what grace is, right? It's to allow God to work in you and through you as he has promised to do in giving us new life to reflect him and his ways by our lives. So he pursues us in our sin. He shows us our sin that we can confess and repent of it but not just to do that, right? that we may be moved into new life. Several years ago, I was, I, it was discovered uh, that a friend um, of mine had a, a, a deep pornography addiction. And um, this had been going on for years, but it had actually escalated to actually calling services and, and meeting with women around town. This man was married at the time, he had kids, and as you can imagine, it was devastating for this news to come out. Certain elders in the church met with him and his spouse, and he confessed to everything. He didn't hide anything, and it became clear that this wasn't just the first time in their marriage that this type of sin had come up, and after much counsel, right, they divorced, they divorced in hopes that he would finally get clean in order that he could have some type of life with his family. And I'll be honest, right, I, pretty new uh, at this pastor business stuff at the time, right, I was pretty skeptical of any change. I was really skeptical, you know, that he would even care about this, to be honest with you. But here's what, here's what happened. My friend moved out completely of, his, of the house, and immediately checked into several accountability and sexual addiction services. Some he's still a part of to this day. He gave everything he had immediately, house finances to his wife and kids and the divorce. No one told him to do that. For almost two years, he submitted his life to the oversight of many pastors, counselors, friends. At first, right after the divorce, he just kept talking about wanting to move back home with his family. Would this happen? There was no promise that this would happen. But somewhere around the nine-month mark, I remember meeting with him, and it was as if I was talking to a completely new person. He wasn't necessarily talking about wanting to get back with his family, although he, you know, he knew that that wasn't promised to him. Instead, what he talked about was Jesus and 
what he had learned through the process and who, who he was then and who God is and by his grace, what, 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 who God was making him into. It was, and it still is one of the most powerful examples of repentance that I have ever witnessed. Now, a few months later, he tells me that his ex-wife let him ask her out on a date. And of course, as, as a pastor and any kind of oversight, this is, gets you just a little nervous. You're, you're not sure about this. And so, of course, we all called her and made sure this was okay and she was okay with it. But everyone knew that, he, this, that this was okay. Like he, had cha- he had changed beyond any imaginable, any, anything that we could imagine. A few months of dating led to a new engagement, which led to a new wedding. They got remarried. Full reception and celebration. We danced all night. Our minds still a little perplexed at what God was doing in the lives of our friends. Can this really happen? We kept thinking. Can people really change? Is God really that good? And the answer, friends, is yes. Yes. This couple is not only still married, but they have one of the best marriages I've seen. Uh, They have two because honesty is not an option for them. But I remember talking with his wife after the wedding and just reflecting on all of this, and she would say, too, this wasn't what she expected. She knew the old marriage had to die, and if God was going to bring them together, they would both have to be completely new people. And that's what happened. Grace led to new life in them. Now, yeah, this is in some ways an over-the-top account, example of this. But this is what repentance is doing for David, and it's what it's doing for us. It's the design of it. It's to bring new life to you. To take something that is dead, and to breathe new life into it. And it is a grace of God that does this for us, that pursues us in our sin, that is kind enough to show it to us, but not just for the purpose of, of, of condemning us, Lord, but that we would actually see it and break over it so that he might create something new in us. This is what he wants to do with you. This is what he wants to do with me. And it doesn't matter what age you are. You're not done yet until you go to be with him. We are all in process. This is God's promise to us. As much as we are willing to submit ourselves, what? To his governing word. To work in us. And the reason we would even consider this is the grace upon grace, right, that makes this happen and that makes this possible in the first place. And that is is that knowing your sin has already been put away in the first place. God will not make you bear the penalty of your sin. Instead, what Jesus will bear its penalty on the cross for you. Are you comfortable with that kind of grace? I don't know that I am, but this is how he works, meaning you don't get what you deserve, friends. Someone else gets it and said in exchange, 
you get new life. This is what God wants to do in and through you, what is, what, what's in a personal affront to him, which is your sin, he removes in the most personal of ways, putting it on his son. And why? To come full circle, this is, truly is the gospel story that develops out of our sin story. Because this is who he is. This is what he longs to do in and through his people. Would we trust the Lord enough then to submit our lives to his accusing word as we watch David go from chapter 11 to chapter 12? And it's not going to get easier for him. Repentance doesn't mean that life turns out great and everything's fine. We'll see that next week. But what it does mean is we are assured that God still loves us and in his pursuit of us in our own sin, that we are assured that it is his love to us as he shows us those things, that we may repent, that we may be led to new life in him. Would we learn to live out of God's grace in that way for his glory? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful and perhaps just perplexed even at the way that you work as we see you work here in David's life. And as we look ahead and we reflect over Psalm 51 and the things that David learned about his sin and learned about you in the process, would you draw our eyes to those things that we may not see repentance as failure or as in some way us not being close to you, but that we would see that see this, uh, Lord, as growth and as your kindness to us. Uh, be with us now as we come to the table where we are confronted with grace all the more. As we see how our sin is put away, that forgiveness is truly possible. And may this be the motivation and the power even for us to consider moving towards repentance as you continue to reveal sin in our lives that we may be changed people and reflect your goodness to the watching world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.